Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in. This is the Cosmos in You podcast and your host, Susanna Scully. I'm very excited about today's episode. We have Alex Sakaris, host of Skeptico and author of Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything, is a successful entrepreneur turned science podcaster. In 2007, he founded Skeptico, which has become the number one podcast covering the science of human consciousness. So definitely a kindred spirit here. Alex has appeared on syndicated radio talk show hosts, both in the US and the UK, and is well known within the parapsychology and near-death experience research communities. In this episode, we discuss what Alex now believes about the survival of consciousness after interviewing hundreds of guests, who his favorite guests have been and why, his own research and findings around near-death experiences. He talks a lot about, quote, following the data. That's a you know, big part of his uh, podcast. And finally, we discuss the research and theories around synchronicity, deja vu, and precognition, which I love. So this episode was both fun and enlightening, and I can't wait for you to listen. So without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for being here. Suzanne, it's my pleasure. Well, um... As I said in the intro, you are the host of one of my absolute favorite podcasts called Skeptico, uh, which, as I was mentioning to you in your pre-interview on all my commuting, that is what I listen to and love. Um, So I'd love to introduce you to our audience, have you tell us a bit about your background, your story, and what brought you to where you are today. Sure, that'd be great. And as I was telling you, it's it's fun to meet new people and connect. I know that's a big part of your show, and it's a big part of my show, too. So it was exciting to get this request from you and then to find out that you really do have a good show. Oh, and, oh boy, I was telling you, I was listening to some of them and, and great episodes. And I've already told a couple of people on air, and you'll hear this if you listen to Skeptico, like... The interview you did with Dr. Rick Strassman, the mm. DMT spirit molecule guy, yeah. I've recounted some of the key points of that interview. And I said, wow, you know, Susanna really did a better job than I did with Rick when I had him on. And here's kind of the cool stuff about they're waiting there on the other side for us. Wow. I mean, that just blew me away. So it's great to connect in this way and talk about this journey that we're both on, because that's really what my show is about. Skeptico from the beginning, it's been about my journey to understanding what I think are the two biggest questions in science. Who are we and why are we here? And then sharing that journey with someone else who happens to put a headset on and listen to these shows. And what I've always told people is, hey, this is my secret plan. Because I just wanted to know these things personally. That's exactly right. (laughs) And you can't just call people up and say, you know, you wrote that terrific (laughs) book. Would you mind telling me about this? 
Oh, Alex, that is the exact same. I mean, that is literally, you know, I would say I would, you know, check out these books, these obscure books from the library, sit in my bed, read them and have that exact thought. I want to talk to this author. I have so many more questions. How do I do this? Well, maybe I'll start a podcast and then they'll talk to me. There you go. (laughs) All right, great. Well, so tell, tell our audience more about that. What you know, have you always been interested in who are we and why are we here? Was there an event that happened? What? Tell us about that. Not really. You know, I mean, my path was really more of a traditional path, a business path. You're out there in Silicon Valley. You can relate. I was in the high tech business, had an MBA, had returned to school to try and get a PhD in information systems because I thought, wow, this business thing, I don't know if I can really connect with the money-making part of that. I just want to kind of be left on my own kind of thing. But then I was drawn back to that money thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I pursued a business career and always had in the back of my mind an interest in these bigger questions. But I wasn't really sure, number one, that it was totally okay to ask those questions. I always felt a little bit weird that I seem to care about this stuff. And to me, it seems central. And to most of the people I was around, they're like, who cares? Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. And the other thing is, I didn't really know about a way to systematically go about answering those questions. So that's why it's taken me seven years mm-hmm. <laughs> with Skeptico or seven or eight years, you know, and you've been at it for a year and yeah. I think you're, you're well along the path. So that's great. Oh, well, thanks. Um, so what, so here's what's interesting on your podcast. It's obviously, it's called Skeptico. So tell our audience where you're coming from. I know one of your main themes is follow the data. So tell us what you mean by that and where you're coming from as you approach it. Well, Exactly. And again, since my background was kind of business and kind of, I guess, just traditional education, all that stuff, I just took a really straightforward approach to this stuff. Okay, you want to know the answers to who are you, why are you here? Because those are the most fundamental questions. Follow the data. Mm -hmm. Follow the data. Get the best, smartest people you can. Listen to what they say. Go to the other side. Listen to what the people who disagree with them say. Mm -hmm. And then Follow the data the best you can, wherever it leads, regardless. And I thought that was a terrific plan. (laughs) But there's two things that 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 led to that become huge problems. One is you follow the data and it's really exciting, but you run into the how can this be question? Mm. Because anyone who follows this data... Anyone who challenges the idea that you are this biological robot in a meaningless universe, which is what mainstream science tells us, don't kid yourself, yep. don't uh, don't buy into the way they kind of gloss it over. At the end of the day, go talk to your run-of-the-mill neuroscientist, and that's what they'll tell you. It's your brain. It's the chemical reaction. There's no. There's really no such thing as love. There's really no such thing as meaning. And they'll have some nice placating language about how, you know, hey, that's great that you have that experience, but it really doesn't matter. So if you find that to be not true, that to be falsified, as I have, then you're left with this huge question, which is, how can this be? I mean, how can this so easily be falsified, this idea that, you know, you're this biological robot? 
It's, 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 well, first of all, it's just ridiculous. I mean, if you just go ask the average person in the street, let alone the average person, you know, in the plains of New Guinea that's never had any contact with the outside world, they will just laugh in your face at the idea that you know, life is meaningless and you're a biological robot. But somehow, if you ask a serious neuroscientist or other scientist, they'll take seriously that whole idea. So the first big barrier you get is the how can this be question? How can there be this huge divide between what this very narrow materialistic reductionistic science cartel is saying and what all these other people are saying? So that's question number one that becomes the big stumbling block. And the question number two that becomes a huge stumbling block is why isn't the data enough? So you start getting inklings that this isn't true, that we really are more, that that there is this extended consciousness that we haven't quite figured out. And then the big question is, why isn't that data enough? Why doesn't it seem to change people's minds, change their beliefs, change the way they look at life and the way they tackle life? It makes me want to stand up on my chair right now and jump up and down. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, for example, some of the work they're doing at HeartMath Institute, Mm. right? Uh, Some, you know, these, or Julia Mossbridge, you know, you and I both. So what have you come up with? Why? Why isn't it enough? Well, it isn't enough because we all hold on to our cherished beliefs Mm. dearly. And... There's some good reasons for that, and there's some not so good reasons for that, but it really comes down to is fear, right? Yeah. So this is, gets into a kind of personal psychology and spiritual development issues, but hey, that's where it's at, right? Yep. We want to hold on to our beliefs because we're afraid of where things might lead if we change those beliefs. And as crappy as our life might be, it's a life that we know and we feel like we can control And we'd rather live that than to really venture into the idea that, what do you mean? Consciousness extends beyond my bodily death? What the heck does that mean? I have to worry about what happens after I die? That's right. Yeah, right, right. It's just too much. Too much. And so when you have followed the data, because I know you've done a lot of research, talked to, I don't know, what, hundreds? You said, how many people have you talked to? Hundreds, if not Yeah, thousands. yeah, hundreds, yeah. hundreds. Um, so where has the data led you? What Now having done all this, the years of this, where are you at now with what you have witnessed or observed? Well, that's tough because mm-hmm. it's a moving target. You yeah. know, I feel like... I've changed so many times over on this, you know, skeptical journey and learning a bit more of the puzzle, another, you know, touch on the elephant as the old story goes, you know, mm-hmm. we're all just kind of hold blind men touching one part of the elephant. We don't see the whole picture and that's what we're trying to do. But I think that biggest step is that first one. That is realizing that this idea that consciousness is limited to merely our brain, that we are therefore biological robots, and that our entire universe is meaningless, and therefore life is meaningless, because your life can't have meaning if it's embedded in a universe that doesn't have meaning. You're right, yeah. 
th- this is a point that I don't know how it escapes a lot of well-meaning, <laughs> right. heartfelt atheist folks and other, you know, people like that. But it, it doesn't really logically make any sense. If the universe is meaningless, your life is meaningless. Yes. That's the only conclusion we can have. So as soon as you get past that, you go, wow, that I knew that was a silly idea. But now I see that science is really backing up the idea that that's a silly idea. Yeah. Then the bit, that's the big step in saying, okay, so I am more. Mm-hmm. Somehow in, in a way that I don't completely understand, I am more. And then, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show about near-death experience science because it's something I really spent a lot of time on, maybe an inordinate amount of time on, <laughs> because I really wanted to nail it down because, not because I have any personal experience with near-death experience, I don't. But to me, it really scientifically cuts to the chase in terms of this whole thing. What the near-death experience science has shown us, and it's shown us conclusively, and I'd be happy to talk with any scientist that would like to come on and has a, a differing opinion on that. I've spoken to many of them, many, many uh, of those non-believers, mm-hmm. if you want to call it. And it's always a route in terms of any kind of debate <laughs> or any kind of thing, because all the day, all the good data is on the other side. But the, the point being is where that takes us is that the science says that here we have people that don't have a working functioning brain. So the brain is either clinically dead or the brain is so severely compromised that it doesn't fit in with our neurological model for what it takes to generate a conscious experience. And yet, what the science tells us is that these people do have a conscious experience after death. So that's it. I mean, that that takes... I think for most of us, it takes years and a lot of kind of realigning our beliefs to fully kind of grok what that means, that consciousness doesn't end at death. All right. So when you say science tells us, so for let's let's use the example, some of the most famous um, near-death experiencers, uh, Dr. Eben Alexander, Anita Morjani, those are just some that come to mind. For example, if we could, let's just play with Dr. Eben Alexander. For those who aren't familiar, he wrote Proof of Heaven and um, what's the most recent one? I forget the name of his most recent book. Knocking on the, Heaven's Door? No, no, no. That's probably. Anyway, Maybe anyway. That's not, yeah, anyway. It, it, a great guy and yeah. a, a guy I've had on the show a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Harvard neurosurgeon. And, you know, one of the big knocks, one of the big, big knocks on uh, Dr. Alexander when he came out with his book And this will kind of give you a a, a deeper appreciation for the how can this be question is there was this serious blowback on uh, Evan Alexander when he came out with the book from the neuroscience and uh, atheist community is really what it was. People like Sam Harris and the whole crowd. And, And one of the big knocks on him was he's not a neuroscientist. So now think about that for a minute. The guy is a Harvard neurosurgeon. Yes. So he's in there operating on people's brains. Yes. And the claim is, well, he just doesn't really understand (laughs) neuroscience. Do you think? (laughs) No. I remember this. Didn't they come out with a letter 
right? It was like very official. I remember after. Oh, and, and then yeah. there was a big Newsweek expose. Yes, and we did a we did a whole episode on the show about that Newsweek episode of the of the Newsweek expose and how it was completely fabricated. Yeah. It was a completely hit. It was a complete hit piece, you know. And the the guy who did it, who did the expose on the expose, is a guy named Robert Mays. And he's uh, Robert May, I think. I'm sorry, I mispronounced it. And um, what he found is he went to the admitting, not the admitting, to Dr. Alexander's doctor, who was the person who was he was under the care of at the hospital, who said all these really kind of nasty things in Newsweek. And she retracted all of them. Yeah. She said, oh, my gosh, I was misquoted. I really feel like I was misrepresented. I wish this whole thing you know, had never happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's what you, so I took it upon myself to send that to Newsweek and say, yeah. okay, you guys need to correct this or do some kind of detraction. That's right. Because I would suspect that you don't normally when your primary source for a story recants their story that you usually correct that nothing of the kind we stand their Their response to me was, we stand by our story. Oh, okay, well, you stand by your story, but again, your primary source, this physician, does not stand by her. If That's she right. feels like she was misrepresented in the story, shouldn't that tell you everything? But I'll tell you what, Susanna, my favorite interview on the near-death experience science was from a guy named Dr. Jeff Long. Oh, I don't know and, him. Uh, okay, tell us about his story. Oh, great guy. Uh, he is a radiologist practicing radiologist. So he's a cancer doctor who works with people who are dying all the time. He just got interested, like so many of these doctors who are near-death experience researchers. They're, they're just doctors who work with people. And most doctors who work with people who are near-death or who die frequently in their care yeah. encounter near-death experiences. There's just no question about it. So like heart surgeons, radiologists, other people like that, all the time. They all have these kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Long was just kind of tenacious enough to not let it go and say, hey, that's pretty strange. I want to explore that further. Well, what he did was compile the largest and most comprehensive medical survey of more than 2,000, I'm sure it's many more than that, near-death experience-ers. And he categorized and organized all that work in a very uh, compelling way in a book of, I think the book's title was Evidence of the Afterlife. It was a New York Times bestseller a few years ago. And uh, Dr. Long just does a fantastic mm. job of delivering the goods and just telling things like they really are. And as you probably know, this kind of medical survey work is really the bedrock of modern medicine. Right. So when we don't know an area, we don't know what's going on in a particular problem area or, you know, new area of medicine. Surveying a large number of people in a carefully controlled way is the best first step to try and get your arms around what's going on. And that's what he's done. Done a fabulous job of it. And the evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, the one I like, Suzanne, he's got five people in the survey or maybe it was seven who were blind from birth. Okay. So now think about that. They're blind from birth. They have no concept of what color means, mm. of what objects are. 
these people have a near-death experience and they see, well, they see if you, but they report seeing things for the first time. Wow. And their reports are consistent with thousands of other NDE accounts that have been collected across the world. So I mean, wow. that's pretty compelling evidence right there. That isn't? is. So that is where, so the data, when the, coming back to that follow the data has brought you to a place where you, I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but if I'm, what I think I'm hearing you saying is that it's hard to believe that consciousness does not survive death based on the data. Correct. Right? Okay. Evidence overwhelming that yeah. it survives death. Yeah. Who have been some of your other favorite guests or authors for, you know, our guests listening and maybe they're new to all this and they're just, they're a sponge and they just want to, you know, learn all about it. What else has been interesting to you or has sort of pushed you over the edge? Well, you know, when I started, I was really sticking to kind of the more the stuff you could kind of wrap your arms around mm -hmm. easier, the parapsychology stuff. Mm -hmm. And for that, I really respect and admire uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, mm -hmm. biologist from Cambridge, and Dr. Dean Radin, mm -hmm. who is at the IONS Institute in California and has done some terrific work with presentiment experiments where they put someone down in front of a computer and tell that person, okay, in a couple seconds, the computer is going to show you this image and it's either going to be some kind of very calm, you know, kittens or pastures or something like that, or it's going to be something that's going to rile you up. It's either going to be a very violent picture or a very explicit sexual picture or something like that. So this is a, a, freshman psychology experiment that's been over, done over and over again for many, many years where we're going to then measure some kind of measurement of your physiology when you see that picture, right? Yeah. So we're going to measure your, your skin response or your the eye dilation of your pupil or something like that. Here's the twist that Dr. Raiden did. He said, we are going to look at your physiological response before the picture is displayed. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at it before the computer even begins the random number generator that selects the picture. That's the clincher. Say that again. <laughs> That's the clincher. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a whole mind trip there. Yeah. Before it's even selected as his data shows, replicated, I should say, now like 27 times by nine different labs around the world, what the data shows is that there's a statistic, a small but statistically significant indication that your physiology knows what image is going to come before it's ever selected. I get the chills every time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so synchronicity, deja vu, telepathy, you know, everything starts to kind of look differently when we just follow that data and we say, wow, what really is going on in this entangled universe that physics is telling us about? And your recent guest, and I'm blanking on his name, who was about synchronicity, and he used the example of a circuit board. That visual was really impactful to me. 
where he was giving, and I'll let you tell us more about it, but he was giving the sense that if you looked at your life as a vision board, I'm sorry, sorry, as a circuit board, essentially your future self is giving you data in terms of uh, what is going to happen, what should I say should happen. Am I right? Can you tell us more about that? Right. So the gentleman's name is Dr. Eric Wergo. Yeah. And what what he has done is kind of taken the pre-sentiment work that I was just telling you about with Dean Radin and the precognition work, like you mentioned, of Julia Mossbridge at Northwestern University, all of which peer-reviewed, very, very solid work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taken that and he's connected it to some of the things that we've known about for a long time and have experienced for a long time, right? So synchronicity, that sense of wow, things seem to be happening in a strange way that all seem to fit together in my life. Or the experience that almost everyone has had of deja vu, like, oh my gosh, I know what is about to happen, you know, and then it it happens. Or you experience it and you have that sense that it has happened before kind of thing. Really two ways of saying the same thing. So what he did is said, okay, what if we link those two things together? So... Take the Julia Mossbridge experiment at Northwestern. What she did was a slight twist on the Dean Radin experiment. And she said, okay, I'm going to take these freshman psychology students again, and I'm going to divide them up into two groups, men over here, the women over here. And I'm going to give them this challenge. Pick which image is going to appear next. Okay, so here are the two images Pick which one is going to appear next. And if you do, I'll give you five bucks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, of course, the trick is that the computer hasn't selected the image when the question is asked. So there's no way you can know this is random, right? Right. This is a true random event. It should be 50-50 every time. But it doesn't turn out to be exactly 50-50. It's a little bit better than 50-50 for the boys, for the men. And it's right about 50-50 for the women. Her conclusions from this, Dr. Mossbridge's conclusions from this are twofold. One, that again, here is that knowledge of the future showing up again in our biology, in our physiology. And number two, it seems to be linked towards things that we really care about. So her twist was to say, men, this might be a surprise to a lot of your audiences, to a lot of your audience, but men seem to like to be right. (laughs) They like to be right. I don't believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Stunning. Stunning. I know. But, you know, follow the data. Follow the data. (laughs) Men like to be right, and they like playing these little games, like, give me five bucks if I pick the right picture. Oh, Lordy. (laughs) Women are more like, yeah, okay, but I don't really care that much. Exactly. So if you care about something, you're directed towards that future outcome is the result, the conclusion that she can make. And then what Eric Burgo is saying is, Hey, maybe that's how life in general is. Maybe that's why we're 
led to synchronicities. Maybe that's why when we do our goal setting and our planning, maybe that's an added factor, an added X factor in why we get to where we're going is because in some way that we don't totally understand, we're pulling that future towards us or that future is planned and we're moving towards it. So I was thinking about this as I was falling asleep last night. I was thinking about that circuit board and I was thinking about quantum physics and this, you know, you think about the observer effect and that all possibilities exist at once. And then it's the one that you, the particle that you observe and what you expect of it is how it reacts. So then I thought, is there a chance that, again, to stay with the circuit board theory, that there are an infinite amount of circuit boards, meaning all possibilities, and that coming back to Julia Mossbridge, whatever we focus on or care about, right, is the future that we decide in that moment. And that's where free will essentially comes in. But all those circuit boards, there's an infinite amount of them that are existing. And geez, if I go even further, maybe all of them exist in all different dimensions, right? Maybe there is an infinite amount of us experiencing every single iteration of that. But that's, you know, who knows? Um, what are your who thoughts knows, on that? But, yeah. Well, who knows? But those are the questions that we then have to tar- start taking seriously. Yeah. And that's the real problem for science is that everything looks like the famous Carl Sagan quote, mm-hmm. how many angels fit on the head of a pin? Mm. I mean, yeah. That's how everything looks after a while. It's like, you know, all these crazy questions. And speaking of the angels thing, hey, you know, we can play around with uh, synchronicity and precognition, but sooner or later, we got to we got to start talking about the hierarchy of consciousness, i.e., the God thing, right? Yeah, so yeah. we can't just totally sidestep that, given that every wisdom tradition in every culture throughout time has kind of told us that there is some kind of hierarchy and that there is something like a good and a bad. And there is a reason why we feel a certain way when we do quote unquote good things and why we feel a certain way when we do quote unquote bad things. And again, if we look to science, science will tell you that that is completely an illusion. It's been programmed into you that there is no such thing. And yet we do, I think, have to start. We're compelled to start asking those questions in a serious way. And that's really hard to take. Yeah. And do you, does it feel, does it feel as though in the years that you've been doing this, that have you seen a significant enough shift in science, in mindset, in society um, from the time you started this to now? I don't know about that, Suzanne. Mm. It's hard to tell, you know, because there's a real tendency to get in this echo chamber that we create, you know, Mm -hmm. where we're now only talking to people that kind of agree with us and all the rest of that. That's why I've always tried to reach out to people that really disagree with the direction I'm going and really try and hear where they're coming from. Because, you know, one of the tough things about the spiritual angle, because let's face it, all this stuff that we're talking about very quickly leads into questions of spirituality. Sure. Yep. 
And, and, and one of the problems we have in our culture is, again, it gets back to this science thing, is we've given us, we, we've been forced into this phony, phony, false choice between science and religion, right? Yeah, yeah. So it just shuts down conversations because people go, okay, it's science because I know if it's not science, you're going to be out there pitching some kind of religious agenda. And I know what that religious agenda is probably going to be. It's probably going to be baby Jesus and, you know, died on the cross and all mm-hmm. the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's so important to, at the same time, look at how some of those models stand up. Yeah. And, you know, like I've really dug into Christianity. I think people find an extended consciousness realm that includes Jesus, all the rest of that, fine. But if you really want to look at Christianity, it just doesn't stand up historically. Right. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't pass the smell test in terms right, of right. historical Jesus, baby Jesus hypothesis. So how do we factor that in? And how can we have this kind of really open discussion about what is religion? What is religious expression? How does that relate to spirituality? And more importantly, how does that tie back to the data, the data, the data? Yeah. Yeah. And those those are all the questions. Well, I've always thought about interesting about religion is that this idea that it's storytelling. I know this is not saying anything new, but of, of not taking it literally, right? But it's the it's the metaphors, it's the stories that we can take forward in life. And how so many people get, you know, they all of a sudden say, well, it's not historically correct. It's not, you know. Um, well, of course, it's like a game of telephone, you know, the Bible. It, maybe people hope people don't get angry with me for saying that. But it seems that's, you know, the stories throughout the years, it becomes like a game of telephone. But, but see, that's yeah. the question, isn't it? Because yeah. it, even that is an assumption, right? Yeah. <clears throat> To say it's a story of telephone. Well, that's one way of understanding it. To say, as you know, your former guest, Dr. Rick Strassman says, who, again, if you haven't listened to Susanna's interview with him, it's great. Make sure you go back and listen to that one. The guy is really, really smart. And he has a slight speech impediment that you handled really. Thank you. (laughs) You handled it really well. It it really came out good. And he was able to express himself better than I ever heard. But here's a guy who explored this extended consciousness realm by doing a controlled experiment, giving people DMT, this very strong hallucinogenic. And what he found was not that their brain changed and they had this brain-based experience. No, what he found is there's another extended consciousness realm. It is independent. It is outside of us. And these people traveled to that realm. And when they got there, there were beings on the other side saying, hey, glad you're here. Where have you been? Now let us tell you about some of the bigger stuff that's really going on. So so turning that back to the Bible, is that what was going on with the Bible? Mm. Is that what's what was going on in a bunch of other ancient texts and wisdom traditions? Were people somehow accessing this other realm of consciousness, either through a near-death experience or a hallucinogenic experience or a, you know, Kundalini. shamanic experience? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And were they gaining information and then trying to bring it back. Again, it sounds way out there, but if we follow the data, we are compelled to start taking those questions seriously. Yeah, absolutely. 
And sort of shifting gears, I wanted to be sure to touch on an episode you had with Emily and Dan, um, who do this family therapy. And now I'm blanking on the name of what it's called. Uh, Systemic. Constellation. uh, Systemic family constellation. That's what it is, right? Can you tell us a bit about their work and your experience? Because I found this episode riveting. Well, what they've done is taken some pretty well-established research on after-death communication. So there's no, there's just no way getting around after-death communication. It happens. Yeah. So on my show, we've interviewed Dr. Julie Beischel, yeah. formerly the University of Arizona, yeah. has done all this work in assisted after-death communication, basically medium research. She's done it in a very controlled way. And fact is, it seems to work. It seems to happen. There's also people that have done induced after-death communication. There's also people that have looked at spontaneous after-death communication. Do you know that if you have a long-time spouse and that person dies, 60% of those people report seeing, feeling, or hearing that spouse. Mm. And they're quite adamant that it's not an illusion, it's not grief, it's not anything else. It's really sensing it. The data that we've looked at supports that. That was just unavoidable. There seems to be this phenomenon called after-death communication. And therefore, what Dan Cohen and Emily have, have, have asked is to say, okay, what does that mean for family therapy? Right? So if there is this afterlife realm. And if our family members are in this afterlife realm, again, in some way we don't understand and don't have to completely understand, what does that now mean for family therapy? What does that mean if if dad who died has some unresolved issues or if I have some unresolved issues with dad? We've always known that's a problem, right? Your dad dies, you still have some unresolved issues with him, they become barriers in your life. What they're saying is, can it work the other way in addition to that? You know, dad is over there and he has some unresolved issues. Great, great grandpa who you never met is over there. He has some unresolved issues. So what they've done and they have, I guess, the clinical experience to say that they've had dramatic results when they try and resolve those intergenerational issues with the deceased. Yeah. I mean, so I want to jump into your experience, but just a quick note. Also, um, there's experience. I I think the experiments were coming out of Penn. It's a guy I want to have on my podcast where, and maybe you know about this, where they've been studying mice and that they inherit trauma from their, you know, great, great, great grandmothers. Uh, So I think the experiment, this is, you know, within the last two years, you know, they took a mouse and when it had a certain stimulus, it got shocked, right? I can't remember exactly what it was, but it went for this. It got shocked with a certain smell, I think is how they did it. Then they did had seven mice after that, and they separated all of them. So none of them knew each other. And sure enough, with each one all the way down to the seventh one, when they had that smell, they had trauma in their body. Okay, so, I'd, yeah. like to, I'd like to make a, 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 ask a request. Okay. When you do that interview, yes, 
Will you also publish it on Skeptico and okay. make a, do a guest appearance okay. on Skeptico and yeah. guest host and publish that? Because okay. it's important work. Yeah. But that field is called epigenetics. Right. Epigenetics. <laughs> That's right. Where you turn on and off genes. Well, well right? okay, maybe. Right? <laughs> maybe. Right? Okay. So, so good. That's a great point, right? So to, to, to just further yeah. tweak what you're saying just a little bit. Yeah. So th- th- it's so two mice are are there the boy mouse and the girl mouse right right and they're conditioned that there's this really bad smell that they should avoid mm-hmm. okay they get that then they have babies mm-hmm. and they remove the babies right at birth yeah okay and then they don't do anything to the babies but then the babies have babies yep. and they remove them at birth yep. and they do that again and again and again yes and they do that down to seven generations which is just absolutely incredible yes and the seventh generation, they still don't like that smell. Yes. So we put that back into our materialistic reductionistic mm-hmm. model of science. <laughs> and there's only one possible explanation for that. <laughs> it's genetics. Right, right. Never mind that we have no model for how this could, how this kind of information could be turned on genetically and passed along genetically. Right. Never mind that. We have to fit it back into genetics because it's the only possible way we could explain what we're seeing in the data. Yeah. Now, a far better explanation would be what we were just talking about with Dan and Emily, that there is this extended consciousness realm. And it's not just us who are in that extended consciousness realm, but it's all living beings who are in this extended consciousness realm. And there's some kind of field consciousness Mm -hmm. or some other thing that we don't understand about consciousness that extends past generations. Again, Dr. Rupert Sheldrick, biologist from Cambridge, has done a lot of work on this. I mean, those would seem to be much more parsimonious, reasonable (laughs) explanations for what's going on. But hey, we'll stick with the genetic thing for a while (laughs) because that's what everybody's comfortable with. Right, right. So you had an experience of this. Um, not with mice, but this family therapy, what findings did you personally see? What, what surprised you? What? Well, it was quite interesting and amazing. The, the, it didn't quite fit in their model because they didn't have a pressing issue, Ah. but we did find some issues that we wanted to resolve. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they fully resolved inside of my family, I have four kids. Yeah. You know, like, you know, who doesn't have family problems? Right, right, right. right. That's <laughs> the definition. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, I got four kids and yeah. one 21 year old and three teenagers. You know, oh, it's boy. like, okay, yeah. you know, you've <laughs> yeah. got issues, baby. You know, yeah. yeah. So fully resolved? No. Yeah. Uh, resolved? Uh, I don't know. To be determined. Mm-hmm. It, it showed some interesting kind of turns here and there with some of those relationships definitely you know so uh, i don't know the jury's still out but worthwhile definitely and i'm fully believe what they're saying what they're saying in terms of the data what they're saying in terms of we've worked with these clients and these clients have come back and things for these clients have been resolved yeah. in ways that are unexplainable by normal means yeah yeah oh amazing all right. Well, Alex, how can people find out more about you, the podcast, your book? What, where can they find you? 
Well, skeptico.com is where you can find all that stuff. The book, I haven't really put up on there. I need to do a better job of that. The book is Why Science is Wrong About Almost Everything. It's a book about consciousness science. And all that stuff is e pretty easy to find out there. And I hope people do and connect with me the way that we've connected. Because, you know, like you say, that's really what this thing is all yeah. about connecting with people on your journey. Yeah. And you have a great forum as well on Skeptico if people want to engage in a community and talk more about this. And that's on your website. Definitely right. Yeah. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. And I feel very honored to have connected with you and uh, to introduce you to our audience if they did not know about you already. And can't wait to continue on this journey with you. Great. And don't forget, you will come on then, right? You've committed to guest hosting a Skeptico episode. <laughs> Deal. I would be honored. Right. And that's the perfect one to do it, epigenetics. <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. All right. Okay. Thanks again, Susanna. It was great. Thanks, Alex. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, and I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you, or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, cosmos in you.com. Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.